Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus. Increment 2.11, and I think this is an Easter message, even though it's not going to be a special message. It is Increment 2.11, which will be taught for Easter Sunday. Now, often you'll hear Emery announcing the message, and I love how he does that in Trinitarian terms. And I hope you all appreciate him very much because he's listening to me today, even though his pastor is Mother Angelica. <laughs> and uh, so I'm, I'm not Mother Angelica, but I hope you enjoy the message, Emery. So we are beginning today to enter a, well, I guess it's a, a, a little bit of a new phase in the Hebrew study. I'm going to call this the kind of archpriest we need, and this will probably be a part one, the kind of archpriest we need, or if you want a slightly abbreviated version, the kind of priest we need, and we're going to go to Hebrews 7.26 for that, but there's also going to be some other kinds of things entering into today's message that I hope will be both challenging and illuminating. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity. I pray that you'll grant me the grace to preach Christ Jesus the Lord and that you'll give every listener the grace to receive him as such and therefore to be rooted and grounded in your radical love. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Hebrews 7.26, of course, says this is the kind of archpriest we need. And that's the first part of the verse. Now, in John 9.4, Jesus said to his disciples, I must do the works of him who sent me while it's still daytime. Night is coming when no man can work. I woke up one morning with the misled notion of maybe taking a day off from study. And I don't have many of those in my life, and I'm glad because studying the Word of God is, to me, has been an eminent delight and honor. But I, one day I woke up recently and said, well, got a little dose of COVID here and kind of weary and tired, maybe I'll take the day off from study. So, this verse came to me, John 9, 4, I must do the works of him while it is still daytime. Night is coming when no man can work. Kind of got a little prophetic inclination there that the time may come when we won't have the freedom and the ability to study so freely as we do now so I got right up and got at it and I'm I'm glad but I'm preaching Christ here today and not myself but myself your servant for Christ's sake and so as I came in today I prayed as I do almost every time I come here into your hands I entrust my spirit and it is into the Father's hands that I've entrusted my spirit today in order to proclaim 
the God of all truth, the God of truth and the reality that is Jesus Christ. That's what all this is about. So I must do the works of him who sent me while it's still daytime. Night is coming when no one, Udes, no one can work. The work that Jesus had just done after or before saying this was to give sight to a man who was blind from his birth. Daytime referred to the brief time of opportunity when Jesus could perform the works that the Father gave him to do, miracles, healings, expulsions of demons, and of course to proclaim the kingdom of God. The night that he's referring to here is the ordeal of the cross that Jesus would endure in which darkness would cover the whole earth from noon until three o'clock. That's recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels in Mark. Matthew 27:45, Mark 15:33, Luke 23:44. So the Lord was referring to this night coming when no one could work, including himself. He would not be working in that night. He would go from action to passion. As the Latin used to put it, the Latin theologians actio to Passio. I'll explain a little bit about what that means, and hopefully it will relate to the kind of archpriest we need, which we have. That would be a time, the night, not for the son to work, but for him to receive a judgment. In fact, to receive the judgment of God in our place. Not a time for him to work. That was the daytime. The nighttime, that time between noon and three o'clock in the afternoon on the day of his crucifixion. The time when no one can work, including himself, for he wasn't working. He was receiving the judgment of God as the judge, the judge being judged for us. That would be the time not for the son to work, but for him to receive the judgment of God in our place. Again, referring to the Latin, pro se, P-R-O-S-E, two separate words, for you, pro me, for me. Pro nobis for us. Pro nobis omnibus for us all. Of course, as Romans 8.32 says, God gave him for us all. Did not spare his son, freely handed him over for us all. In fact, Romans 8.32 
harks back to Romans 4.25, which says he was handed over, delivered up for our trespasses, for our sins, and then raised or resurrected. It says for our justification, but you know what it really says there in the Greek, and we have, and I'm going to refer to this again and again, I think. The word is N, E N. Wow, look at how thick that is. That's phenomenal. I love it. I'm going to keep it. E N, N. What did Brian do with this anyway? <laughs> now, this is good. I like this because I did want to emphasize N is what is called by Daniel B. Wallace, who wrote Greek grammar beyond the basics. It's called the workhorse of the prepositions of the New Testament. There are probably 36 meanings that it carries, and among the 10 primary broad meanings given to N, one of them, the fourth out of 10 that he lists, N, which sometimes means in, sometimes mean by, means by, also means because of or on account of. I want you to take account of that meaning of the preposition N, E-N, in the Greek text. And it relates to Easter. It relates to resurrection. And that word also can be a synonym to the preposition dia, D-I-A, which can also mean because of or on account of. So what if the meaning in Romans 4.25 was this? He was delivered up or handed over for our sins or because of our sins and raised because of our justification. That would mean that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead because our justification was won by him in his death. The justification of all of humankind, in fact, in Romans 5.18. Maybe we'll take a look at that again. I must do the works of him who sent me while it is daytime. The nighttime's coming when no one can work. Again, the daytime was that time of opportunity when Jesus could do miracles, cast out demons, proclaim the kingdom of God by not only announcing it, but by embodying it in himself. The night would come when no one would work, not even Jesus. For again, in the night, which is the ordeal of his cross, it isn't so much what Jesus did as it is what he endured. For there, the judge to whom all judgment was given and entrusted became the judged in our place. Pro me for me. Pro se for you, pro nobis for us, pro nobis omnibus for us all. This would be the time, this night that he spoke of that had come, would be a time not for the son to work, but for him to willingly Receive the judgment of God in our place, in the place of all. This is called the passion of Christ. 
because passion really is the absence of action or it's the opposite of action in the sense that passion implies the receiving of something, the passive receiving of something. Jesus passively received, though willingly, willingly, but in his passion received the judgment that was ours, in our place. He received, in fact, the judgment on sin as the sin offering. In Jesus Christ, the old man that we were was killed, slaughtered, put off. Not because of the vengeance on the part of God, but because of his radical and unrestricted love. That's what happened. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is when the active works of Jesus, the sent one from God, passed into the passion of the Christ when his action became his passion. When the priest became the sacrifice. When the offerer became the offering. When the archpriest became the lamb. Getting the hint, this is the kind of archpriest we need because this archpriest is also the offering that he offered once and for all and for all time and for all people. This is the kind of archpriest we need. And this is the kind of hope embodied in him that we need to deliver, to communicate, to articulate into our time and for generations to come. This is God's action and Christ's passion for me, the cross, God's action. The cross involves God's action and Christ's passion, pro me, for me, for us, pro nobis, for all of us, pro nobis omnibus, Romans 8.32. So here's a nuance for you, and maybe even an advance on the doctrine. When Jesus said, it is finished in John 19.30 when he said it is finished what did he mean? Let's consider that in a moment. The passion of the Christ is the action of God, the judge of all, judging the one to whom he had committed all judgment and who agreed to receive that judgment in himself. In the cross, the night had come when no one, including Jesus, could work. But in this night, God worked by judging the Son. And the Son did not and could not work, but rather willingly received that judgment. 
Now we read something near the beginning of John chapter 9. That's 9-4. The night is coming when no man can work. At the, near the end of John 9, Jesus said something intriguing that kind of forms an inclusio with that. He said in John 9, 39, for a judgment I came into this world. Match those up. The time is coming when no man can work. The night is coming where no one can work. It was in that night when darkness covered the earth that Jesus received the judgment. For a judgment I came into this world. Then he said, the result of this is that the blind are going to see like this man did. Only the blind seeing refers to the light of God entering into the soul, the stream of consciousness, the heart, enlightening the heart to give the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And for, therefore, the blind to see. But he also said those who see to be struck blind. That means that when this gospel is preached, those who think they know the gospel are finding out that that wasn't the gospel that they thought they knew. Well, I thought I, I, thought I was justified by my personal faith in Jesus Christ. Well, here's the gospel that will blind you to that truth, to that error, rather. You are justified through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and through his faithful death, justified by his blood in Romans 5, 9, and justified by his faithful death, his obedience to the extent of death for you. So God maybe blinds you if because you thought you had something to do with this. So God blinded you to that error in order that he may take you as a blind man and make you see that you were justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and that he was delivered up for our sins, for all sins, and resurrected because of our justification, meaning our justification was one and realized and fulfilled in his dying, not by your faith. For a judgment I came into this world. Now, as John had already said in John 3.17, for God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world would be saved through him. Why did God send his son into the world? To judge the world? No. Why would he send his son into the world to judge an already condemned world? He sent his son into the world for a judgment in which his son would be judged for the world. The judge would be judged. Now, God is the judge of all. We have come to him. Did you know that? We have come to him. He's in the city of our great king. We've come to that city, that new Jerusalem. We've come to the God who is the judge of all in Hebrews 12, 22, and 23. But we've also come to Jesus and to the blood that speaks better things than that of Abel. Meaning we've come to the God who is the judge of all. We've also come to Jesus to whom God entrusted all judgment and who willingly received all judgment 
as the judge. And that's why his blood ratified a new and an everlasting covenant. You are justified by his blood, says Romans 5.9. And therefore, when it says justified by faith in Romans 5.1, it means by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. It's amazing today who really is blind in this world, spiritually speaking. And among those who are blind are those who preach the gospel and think they see. They preach what they call the gospel and they think they see. I preached the gospel and thought I saw, but then I was struck blind in order for God to let me see something I didn't know before, something I didn't see before. And that's the extraordinary unrestricted love of God and a bigger hope and a larger hope that is related to what God has done for me and you and all. So the cross was God's action and Christ's passion for me, for you, for us, for all. So when Jesus said, it is finished, the world was being saved through the Son of God who received the world's judgment by being judged in the place of the world, in our place, in my place, in your place in the place of the world. This is God's action and Christ's passion for me, for us, for all. So when Jesus announced, it is finished, he wasn't saying, my work is done. So why do we call it the finished work of Christ when on the cross he wasn't working, but receiving the judgment of all. Now, there's another sense in which we could say he was working, because you know what he was doing? Carrying away the sin of the world. Bearing the sins of many, which we know to be the sins of all. But when Jesus announced that it's finished, he wasn't saying, my work is done. He was saying, my passion is accomplished. His passion was God's action. For as the Son received the judgment of the world in our place and in the world's place, God was acting. You know why? Because it said God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. In this connection, we'd be more accurate to say the finished non-work of Christ rather than the finished work of Christ on the cross. The finished work on the cross is God's work. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. When was God in Christ reconciling the world to himself? All while Christ was in the days of his flesh, but especially when Christ was in the nighttime not working, but receiving our judgment. 
Now they call, and I'm speaking of they as many theologians, many scholars, many pastors and evangelists, which I like to call good news reporters. They call John 17 the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And I tend to agree with that. So we'll call it the high priestly prayer of Jesus. In that prayer, Jesus reported to the Father, gave him a kind of a sit rep situation report. And in John 17:4, he said, I have finished the work that you gave me to do on earth. So if he had already finished the work that the Father gave him to do on earth, then why does it is finished on the cross mean Christ's finished work? He finished it already in 17.4, we could say. Jesus reported to the Father that he had already finished the work that the Father had given him to do on earth. In other words, he had already finished the work that he was supposed to accomplish in the daytime. His high priestly prayer was on the verge of the night coming when he would not work, but rather receive the judgment which was entrusted to him as the Son of Man. What this means and how this is spelled out will be hopefully the subject of many messages to come. What Jesus said that he had finished was the work that the Father gave him to do on earth. The passion would be something that he would accomplish hoisted above the earth, lifted up between heaven and earth on a cruel crucifix, a cross. And so he had finished the work that the Father gave him to do while it was still daytime. The night was when the Son of Man would no longer work, but receive the judgment of God in our place and in the place of the whole world. When Jesus said, it is finished, he wasn't announcing his finished work, but the end of his passion and the end of God's action in his passion, which is the reconciliation of the world. God's work of the reconciliation of the world is finished. It was finished when Christ's passion was finished. God did not impute the sins of the world to the world because the Son was receiving the judgment on the sins of the world. Now, I was thinking today of something written by Karl Barth because there are a lot of theologians today, many of them who style themselves as universalists, who strenuously object about the notion of what they call penal substitution or some notion of punishment in the cross. And in some regards, they're correct. In some, some regards, they're right because the primary thing we have to see in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is not punishment. 
But there is a substitution there because he did stand in our place there. And he did receive the consequences of sin, which is a radical death, a radical outer darkness, a radical something that we could never comprehend or understand. And so Fleming Rutledge, in her excellent book on understanding the death of Christ, said that mo many of these scholars who object to the idea of penal substitution because they think it's violent, or they think it's vengeful of God, or they think it's a savage thing that it misreads and misleads us about who God really is. But she said something curious and said, most of these people do this without an engagement in Karl Barth's doctrine on the judge receiving our judgment in our place. So what I did was I went to where he did that, and it's volume four, point one of his church dogmatics and it's pages 211 through 283 the last 10 pages of that we've already referred to because it deals almost exclusively with Hebrews and so one of the things that Bart said in that section on the judge judged in our place is this for the sake of the best the worst had to happen to sinful man. Not out of any desire for vengeance and retribution on the part of God, but because of the radical nature of the divine love, which could satisfy itself only by killing him that is, the sinful man, extinguishing him, removing him. <laughs> That's amazing that he relates this not to vengeance but to radical love. That's just one of the things that Karl Barth, who's light years ahead of the majority of his critics, if not all of them. I've been in churches and been under teachers who almost uniformly criticize Barth. If you ask them if they ever read Bart, they would say no, but they read somebody else's criticism of him, that he was a neo-Orthodox, which apparently means that he actually believed some of what the patristic fathers taught about apocatastasis. How dare he? So I decided, well, if the critique of penal substitution is usually leveled at that doctrine without an engagement in Barth, then I decided, well, maybe I'll engage with Barth on this, Karl Barth. So I did read those 70 pages, comprehended about 60 to 70% of it, and so I might blend in some of the things he said on the subject as we continue, because the kind of archpriest we need is the judge who was judged in our place, but he's also the lamb as well as the priest. He is the lamb offered as well as the priest who offers. He is the arch priest who also became the lamb and that lamb who comprised in himself the fulfillment 
of all the shadow sacrifices and all the animal sacrifices which merely foreshadowed him in the Old Testament. That's also coming up. This is the kind of archpriest we need. Now, because of the passion of Christ, I'm writing this down because I want to put this in my notes because I haven't done it yet, but because of the passion of the Christ, which was completed in the night or the nighttime of this evil age, because he performed this or because he endured the cross in Hebrews 12, too, as it's called. Again, that's not action, but passion. He endured the cross. And because he endured the cross by becoming the judged as the judge. And in him, the God, the judge of all, judged Jesus for all. So when God judged all, it was unto justification. I hope you get that. Maybe that truth is blinding you because you didn't believe it, because you believed another gospel. Or maybe it's making you see because you were blind to it before. But both those things happened to me. Because of the passion of the Christ, which was completed in the night, the nighttime of this evil age is now coming to a close, and a new day is about to dawn, as Romans 13.11 puts it, and in fact has already dawned, in one sense, with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The God of peace has brought up the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus. And so, he brings him up from the realm of the dead, says Hebrews 13, 20. He brings him up out of the rain, R-E-I-G-N, as it were, of death. In Hebrews 9, 26, it says that Christ appeared once at the crux of the ages, and I'll explain that someday down the road, if not a little bit today, once at the crux of the ages, suntaleia of the ages would normally mean the end of an age, but the word ages is used, not age. So you can't just say at the end of the age because it's plural. So because Christ appeared once in the end of the ages, it would be better probably to translate this as he appeared once at the crux of the ages. The crux of the ages is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the crux of the ages, the evil age at its end and the messianic age at its beginning, Christ appeared. To do what? For, it doesn't say to do anything there. It says for the putting away or the doing away with or the removal of sin which is A-T-H-L-E-S-I-S. Ath, no, it isn't, it's this, A-L, A-T-H, rather, L-E-T-E-S. Athletus, or athletasis. 
He appeared once at the end of the age. I, I didn't spell that correctly because I didn't plan to go there. So the Spirit takes me to places where I don't plan to go and then humbles me and humiliates me in a good way. But in any case, athetesis is the word. Athetesis. I'll spell it right someday and it'll be spelled right in print. At the crux of the ages, he appeared once, once and for all, for the athletesis or athetesis, the putting off, the putting away, the doing away with, or the removal of sin itself. Not just sins, but sin per se, sin itself. He became sin. And so we could say becoming sin is even worse than becoming the worst of sinners. He became sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so, Christ appeared once at the crux of the ages for the putting away of sin. In his passion, where he was judged as the judge judged in our place, sin was being put away. Sin was being put away in his passion. There's another sense, however, in that he was performing action in fulfillment of the scapegoat because he carried away the sin of the world. Bore the sin of the world is weak. It should be he carried away the sin of the world, like the high priest would confess the sins on the scapegoat, the scapegoat would be sent out into the desert to disappear. And so even though Jesus fulfilled the type of the scapegoat, he did so as the lamb. Jesus is never called the goat of God or the bullock of God or the dove of God. He's called the lamb of God because that one term, lamb of God, comprises and contains and comprehends the fulfillment of all the types of sacrifices of the Old Testament, whether they used the red heifer, the young bull, the goat, the dove, the turtle dove, or even the meal offerings and the bread offerings and the drink offerings. All of it is comprised and comprehended in Jesus, the Lamb of God. So as the lamb, he fulfilled the type of the scapegoat. As the lamb, he was the ram in the thicket. As the lamb, he fulfilled all of the countless sacrifices that were performed by priest after priest after priest and archpriest after archpriest after archpriest. He, in his one-time offering, fulfilled all these things. The God of peace has brought up the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus, from the realm of the dead and from the reign of death. He overcame death. This is the Father's answer to the Son's passion. It is the Father's verdict on the Son's judgment in which the Son of Man was willingly judged in our place. And so again, in Hebrews 12, 22 and 23, we are told that we have come to God the judge of all and to Jesus, and to the blood which speaks better things than that of Abel, in 1224. Judge of all, 
We've come to judge the judge of all, God the judge of all, but the judge of all entrusted all judgment to the Son of Man, which is Jesus. And what did Jesus do with the judgment that was entrusted to him? He received the judgment in our place. And the blood of Jesus speaks better things than that of Abel. His blood speaks of justification. His blood speaks of eternal redemption. His blood speaks of eternal redemption for us all. Pro nobis, omnibus. Abel's blood was the blood of the first martyr. Jesus' blood was the death of an all-saving Savior. This means that we have come to Jesus in whom God, the judge of all, entrusted all judgment and who became the judged of all, for all. His blood, the blood of a new and a better and an everlasting covenant, is the proof that Jesus is the judged in place of all. And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ looks back at the judge being judged in our place. Because God the Father recognized that when the judge was judged in our place, all were justified. And so God raised him from the dead because of our justification in Romans 4.25. And just in case you wanted to know who is our, O-U-R, in our justification, you can glance over at Romans 5.18 to find out that it is the justification and life for all without exception. This is the blood of the everlasting covenant. God who raised Jesus from the dead because of our justification that had happened in Christ's death when he was delivered over for our sins. Similarly, in Hebrews 13.20, God raised up Christ Jesus or brought him up from the realm of the dead because of the blood of the everlasting covenant, meaning God rendered a verdict on what Christ's passion had accomplished. He rendered a verdict on the saving, justifying, redeeming blood of Christ, raised him from the dead because in his death he had secured eternal redemption by his own blood, by his own passion, by his own suffering, by his experience and great, indescribable, incomprehensible ordeal. My servant will justify many, says Isaiah 53, 11. And that many means all. For he bore the sins of many in 53, 12 and in Hebrews 9, 28. And the sins of many means the sins of all. And his blood, which was shed 
for the forgiveness of the sins of many means shed for the forgiveness of the sins of all mankind. Matthew 26, 28. Matthew 20, 28. 1 Timothy 2, 6. Romans 5, 18 to 19. So this is the grace of God and its appearance. You know what it means? Salvation for all human beings. And that means salvation for all human beings, even within a greater salvation of the liberation of all of creation and every rational creature. Think of that when you think of the resurrection from the dead. When we see Jesus raised, he retains the scars in his hands and his feet and his side because in his resurrection, we are compelled to look back at his death, even as we are compelled to look at him and see a new creation embodied in him, comprised of him. And we are compelled to look to the future new creation of all things, which is already guaranteed in Jesus Christ, the mediator of a better covenant, the mediator of a better covenant, the only mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony that can be born in its due time, and its due time is right now, its proper time, right now, to talk about this ransom for all. There's an exodus happening today from churches. And you say, that's bad. No, an exodus is a good thing. It's a deliverance from false doctrine, from a pseudo-gospel, from an inferior hope, and even from a deleterious effect of a false gospel. May that exodus enter into the promised land and bump right into Jesus, the judge who is judged in our place, and the archpriest who is also the lamb who took away the sin of the whole world. We'll continue this in our next message. This has been Easter message, but it's also been increment 211. Father, I pray that you will take the words of your stumbling servant and use them to glorify your son, Jesus Christ, and to manifest him as the judge who was judged in our place and as our great archpriest who is also the sacrifice offered. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.